I think everybody has emotions and they have fears and loves and, and hopes and ambitions and weird thoughts and everybody has them. But what the poet has is has the language to talk about these things. So nobody agrees what poetry is except that it's special. It's a special language. Hello and welcome to Arts In, also known as AI, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. This is Barbara St. Clair, I'm your host, and I am here with Peter Monkey, who is a poet and a teacher and activist and a philosopher. It's nice to hear that long list. And, uh, so um, which one of those would you like to start? Well, I, uh, I think of myself as, as a poet more than anything, even though I don't spend all my time doing that. And I think what happened to me is I came from a blue-collar family out of out of Brooklyn, but I was writing poetry. I had always written poetry, but never thought what to do with it. They didn't teach it, and I knew it was kind of a subversive sort of thing, because whenever I mentioned poetry in Brooklyn, I was just a kid. People always made kind of funny faces and say, what? So, uh, and that attracted me more, because the idea of it being subversive was, was appealing. And uh, I slowly morphed from a... Uh, uh, teacher who wrote secret poems to a poet who taught also. But it, it took about 15 years as I changed, and, and I had to learn this very slowly because because I'm so old, they, they didn't even have uh, writing workshops. I never took a writing workshop in my life. I've only taught them. <laughs> I think that poetry is looked at by a lot of people as very rarefied. You know, only yeah. poets write poetry. Yeah. Only and, dead poets. Well, yeah, <laughs> but... For you, poetry was kind of edgy in, or rebellious almost. Yes, I thought of it like that. My mother was a piano teacher. She belonged to the Book of the Month Club, and that's where I discovered poetry. But I don't think she read it, but I found it, and I liked it immediately. <laughs> and I started rhyming words and, and that sort of thing. But uh, I didn't tell my teachers, and I didn't. my parents knew that I was reading. They didn't know I was writing these poems. And so I have a... You know, desk full of old notebooks that so I never can run, run out of ideas totally because I can go back to these notebooks and there are these terrible poems that uh, I can uh, work on <laughs> first my father wanted me to work for him and then uh, I didn't like that too much he was a uh, selling sheet metal so I went around selling sheet metal for about three months and I said well it's it's okay but uh, Ginny's dad says you could do better selling houses and then I had an experience that I, I have written about that changed our whole lives. And uh, I was showing a young man a house. I asked him what he did, and he said, oh, I'm a teacher over at Mountain Lakes High School. I said, oh, that's, that's good. I said, I thought of being a teacher once, and that was half true, but I didn't know what to do about it. It was something because I like books, you know. And he said, oh, really? He says, uh, what would you have taught? And I said, I guess literature, English, you know, I like, I like reading. And he says, that's really weird, he says, because the English teacher at Mountain Lakes High School was drafted yesterday. Of course, I'd been in the Army, and I was like, I was hit by lightning. Boom, yes. I dropped him right there. I got in the car, and... Uh, you left him at the house, and I you left show him. yourself I said, out. I'm going right, I told him, I'm going right over there. <laughs> and he always, he, he laughed uh, later, because he was the only, he was happy that I was going there. And hired me on a, you know, a sort of a temporary... For the whole year, but uh, I didn't have any teachers. I never heard of teachers' courses or anything. So I get all these books and uh, come home, and Jeannie opens the door and she, oh, she looks at all the books, and I, and I say, "Hi, uh, guess what? I've uh, I've just taken a job teaching uh, seventh grade English, and uh, uh, 
off I went. So I really liked teaching. I took to it, but I, I had less time to write because English teachers are way over, they're the saints of the world, of, the, mm -hmm. of America, that is. They, they do so many jobs, and if, if you do it right, you give them lots to read, and then you're the advisor to the paper and the yearbook, and then you chaperone, and then the, in my case, I like sports, so I uh, helped it on the sports teams and basketball and baseball particularly. And uh, they wanted me to go back to school and take teacher's courses. And when I went there to look at the courses, they were about organizing classes. And I asked, this is, I did a very stupid thing. I went to Montclair State Teachers College. I took a course in 18th century poetry and Dante. <laughs> they were the most appealing to me. I went back in the fall and I uh, showed them very proudly my, my grades from Montclair State Teachers College. I thought, that was so dumb, that that would work. And they looked at it and he says, these won't have do any good. We can't hire you. And I came home and I said, I'm fired. Oh, no. And of course, they hired another guy and he was drafted in the next week. So they brought me back and they said, well, they liked me as a teacher. I just didn't have any papers. And they said, uh, all right, you can come back for this one more year, but you have to promise that you'll go. And I just lied straight out. And I said, OK, I promise. And I didn't ever think I was going to do this. And I uh, started looking up grad schools. I had the uh, GI Bill behind me mm -hmm. to, to help me. And off we went to the University of Michigan. And uh, In Ann Arbor. it changed, changed our lives entirely. By then we had two little babies and uh, slowly taught myself how to, what a workshop was, what, what a real poet was. In high school and in college, I wrote some poems and I sent a couple out to magazines. And they, a couple of them were published. And the only magazines I knew were my mother's magazines, like Cosmopolitan and uh, the Ladies' Home Journal. And, but uh, one night, you know, I'm sitting around with the young writers and... Uh, they were, and one person said, I just got a poem accepted by, you know, the Poetry Magazine, which I didn't know about. And someone had uh, thought they had just, they sent some poems to the New Yorker and someone were in the Sewanee, all, all these names I didn't know, the Debray Magazine. And somebody was being polite and they look over at me and they know I went to the, uh, the poetry readings. And they said, well, did you ever publish anything? And I said, well, well yeah, I did. And, I, and they said, what journal? And I knew this, I shouldn't have said it, but I did. I said... Well, a lady's home. <laughs> and they laughed. And it was, they were very kind, very nice, particularly when they found out that the Ladies' Home Journal paid way more than any of the other magazines. And I was taking Shakespeare and, and Renaissance because I, what I knew is I needed to get a, a job, and I didn't think anything of that poetry was a job exactly right. You know, but I'm, there, are, there are real poets. You can't make a poet. Poet has to have certain ability, the way an athlete does, or a musician. You got to have a good ear if you were going to be a musician, or a sense of color, whatever. Someone who, first of all, very interested in the language itself. And all of the poets that I know had wonderful vocabularies. And I can remember as a little boy, I loved to rhyme. You know, I went to Manila and I rhymed with vanilla. I mean, that's a dumb thing to remember, but I, I loved the idea of that. And uh, I liked playing with words. And, and I think. Everybody has emotions and they have fears and loves and, and hopes and ambitions and weird thoughts and everybody has them, I think. But what the poet has is has the language to talk about these things so, and, and to put them in a way that's, that's stronger and more interesting. It's, it's just, nobody agrees what poetry is except that it's special. It's, it's a special language. But a young 
writer should do is to learn everything he can about how they measure out the words in, in, the, in all the old forms. It's very helpful, even if you're going to write free verse, to know what a villanelle is and what a sonnet is and, and what a sestina is. And then you can start writing away and you'll have, you'll have the tools you need to be a writer, just like a conductor. A conductor has to know all the instruments in the orchestra and how they go together and how rhyme goes and rhythm goes. And, and, uh, and a, I think a, a, a real poet knows all these things, but he, and he's trying to find his own voice. And, and, and real poets don't sound like the other poets. They sound like they find their own voice. So you could read a sonnet, say, by Frost, or a sonnet by Shakespeare, or a sonnet by Dickinson, if she wrote one, or a sonnet by Richard Wilbur, our best-known sonnet writer today. And they don't sound at all alike. And they could even have the same rhyme scheme. They would have the same number of syllables. But Frost sounds like Frost, and Dickinson sounds like Dickinson, and Wallace Stevens sounds like Wallace Stevens. And that's what the, the poet is trying to do, because we have, we have voice prints, basically, that we're trying to get. And, and, it, and, and so that's why, when you're a young poet, when, what I was doing is I was copying what everybody does. I was copying uh, other poets, the poets that I read. And slowly, I began to write poems that uh, people seem to recognize as, as, a, as a Mikey poem, <laughs> whatever that is. Do you have a poem of yours that might be taking a thought that is pretty typical, but presenting it in a, in a manner that answers that question yeah, of what is a poem? I, th I think so, sort of. Um, this looks back to the time when I was growing up in Brooklyn. And in those days, this was the 30s and the early 40s, you hear today, like, America is desperate and it's divided and it's in trouble. This is, this is you know, 2017. But in 1939 and 1940, and, and then up and down the street, here were the blue-collar families, and they all thought they were upwardly mobile. So it was very typical on our street in Flatbush. You could hear the piano, the kids, you know, half of them were playing in the street and half of them were taking piano lessons. And a lot of them would have, like my mother, they subscribed to the Book of the Month Club because... They were going somewhere. They were going somewhere, and they wanted their kids to have music and art in their mm -hmm. lives. And, and uh, so how I started this poem, I found the old book that I had, that my mother uh, had in the family. And I had, I just opened it randomly and it opened to this particular page, this bent page, which was minuet in G. And da 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 the Beethoven. And, uh, and but I, when I was working on this poem, it, I do a lot of rewriting and, and it takes me a while and I didn't know what I was going to call it. And uh, when I wrote down minuet and G at the top, it looked like, like a verb, minuetting. And I saw it as a kind of nice dance in a semi-sad, semi-happy. <laughs> so this is the poem, Minuet and G. Certain melodies can break your heart just seeing them on the page. Their plump ovals bobbing like seagulls on the surface of some moonless tide. And this bent corner conjures the broad hand of Mr. Herbert, whose crescented thumbnail seemed wide as my wrist when he pressed it down, saying, Next week, Peter, we make acquaintance with Mr. Ludwig von Beethoven. My mother hovering, tugging her slender fingers as if to say, Grow, Peter, you can do it. Concentrate. 
while outside my friends whooped, slapping a ball tennis ball against our stoop, Mr. Herbert murmuring legato, legato, and I dreaming gondoliers with black-haired women with shadowy cleavage leaning from balconies, singing my name, Pietro, Pietro. The notes on their frail stems still skittering in clusters down the yellowing page, like children playing three steps to Germany in Brooklyn, one December evening, 1941. So in that, it slowly sort of turns. It's semi-humorous, but then, but it's sad because I, I'm thinking these kids and their mother's high ambitions, and they're going to know, in most cases, a lot more about war than they're going to know about music in right. the years to come. And, and so the other way that it's mixed is that, in a way, that's a free verse poem. You don't see any set form in this particular one. But even so, it's very symmetrically put on the on the page. It begins with four lines when it's, uh, it's talking about the melodies. It makes a statement about the melodies and some moonless tide, and it has the ellipses, dot, 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 three dots. And then comes the story of Mr. Herbert and the lessons, and it goes up to where he's, he's singing my, women are singing my name, P.H. Fisher, and that's the end of that middle part, go dot, 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 and then four more things as a kind of summary and a change of change of things. I, I work that with all of my poems to try to get them into a shape because one of my theories that I picked up along the line, half from this person, half from another, is that that uh, a lot of uh, poets who write like me think of poems like pots and you're making them and you don't know what it's going to look like exactly and you try to see what the pot wants to be. I think every poem has a mind of its own. That's one of the mm -hmm. things I say a lot. And every poem hat, wants to be some kind of shape. It wants to be formal. And I can recognize in my poems as I start, if it's going to be a, a sonnet, for example, if, it's, if it has iambic lines or, or it's going to be looser. And in a poem like this, I have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, signs that are the same, a lot of rhythms that are, are the same. So when he says legato, legato, it gets picked up later by Pietro, Pietro, right. and I have a lot of things like that with, with the uh, sound, and, and it's a true story in a way, but I think poems are true, and, and they're, they're true in, a, in, in one particular sense, in the emotional sense. I think, for example, a Shakespearean sonnet that might be a love sonnet, that's more true than all the science and geography and all kinds of things that we learn in school, which has all changed over, you sure, know, everything sure. has changed. The capital, the countries have changed, everything has changed. But, but the sonnets are the same, and they're talking about how Shakespeare thinks people felt or how he felt. And so in this, in this poem, I'm just describing pretty accurately my feeling about Brooklyn and, and the young kids there and the memories of my childhood. But I say, Mr. Herbert. Now I can't remember the, the real name of my teacher. It could have been, you know, Donaldson or could have been anything. But it's Mr. Herbert because it alliterates with the broad hand of Mr. Herbert who's crescented thumbnail. Right, right. And I, I do that, you know, in all kinds of ways. It's just why it's helpful for people to hear poems and they, they get a bit, little better feeling. I think teachers are often afraid of poetry. That's when they don't teach it well and they don't give it their best shot. Because all they need to do 
I think, is if they can get a someone who really likes a poem, that person then will reread that poem and reread that poem because poems are the kind of writing that you reread. You read more than once. If you like a poem, you read it over and over. So the poem, if it's if it's a poem that that, that you really have have done well in, uh, this poem uh, rewards rereading. You d you discover things about it. You will pick up things. You know words like skittering. You know there. And I didn't have that in my first draft. I wanted to get a kind of bouncing feel that that goes that went well with yellowing and Pietro and, and anyway. I do that in the rewriting. I rewrite for sounds and structure and. You you do this with almost anything. Robert Frost's poem, uh, "Stopping by Woods." Everybody likes that, and they read it again, and then they start seeing oh, all kinds of other things. What does he mean about the dark woods? And why does he repeat and miles to go before I sleep? Is is he talking about sleep or what? Anyway, the more you read it, the less clear it becomes in a certain way, but the more people recognize the thoughts that uh, that they have themselves and. Uh, Typical reaction to a to a poem when it when people like it says I I thought that or I felt that I just didn't know how to say it so that's why Americans even though they are less inclined to like poetry than many other European countries particularly but Americans know that poetry is special and they turn to it at special times in their lives when they fall in love they write little words or they get someone else to write them for them or or if it's if someone is born when they get married when a terrible tragedy someone dies and they turn to poetry then there were more poems written after 9-11 than at any time in america's history everybody wrote a poem wow. poets poets wrote poems of course but everybody wasn't a poet also because even americans recognize that that regular language doesn't cut it in important times of our lives. And so my theory is that, you know, people would, would have richer lives if, if they read more poetry and didn't just do it on the, the particular uh, particular events that happened. And, and it would make us perhaps a, a smarter and kinder nation if we, if we like poetry more. It, it works on imagination and empathy. I don't think there was a, a single poet who is not uh, anti-war. I, I can't think of any. The poets don't tend to think that way. And this is why uh, Pinsky was one of the heads of Writers Resist. They were writers for truth and justice. And, and so the poets, they were writing wonderful stories. Someone said, boy, Mr. Mike, your, your, your first book, is, it has an awful lot of dark poems in it. And why is that? And I said only semi-jokingly, well, that's because they all were written after midnight, you know? I, but I, <laughs> That's another thing a writer, I think, needs. A, a poet he has a certain need to do do this. I felt I needed for a long time. I still do, but less pressing in some ways. Uh, I felt that I had a, a poems inside of me that were trying to come out. I had that feeling. I've, it must be true of all poets and writers and artists and musicians. You know, like, that creative urge, and I, I was busy, and I was teaching and studying. We had four children, and I still had to write, and I, and I you know, I, I stayed up and I wrote every night, pretty much, uh, because I thought that I was, I was catching on to it, and uh, I, I knew which magazines to send to. I, I was a blotter. I took an er No more ladies' home journal. No more ladies' home journal, even though we could have used the money. But I said I would had higher things to shoot for. I was trying to be uh, as good a poet as I could possibly be and 
I was following the ones that I liked and uh, and trying not to sound like them. And and uh, you need a little luck, but you can't have luck if you don't send the poems out. This is what I tell the students. That luck won't come and say, hey, you're great. You've got to send them and they all come back and you send them out and they come back. You rewrite them. And uh, to get a, a poem picked is a very difficult thing. Yes. Because they read thousands of poems. Oh. First of all, I, I tell the students that you have to submit what you think is your best work and present it to them in the best possible way you can. No scratch outs, no erasure, no, you've got to be professional in this because you've got piles and piles of papers and, and you have to have, particularly, you, you have to have something, I think, early on. And many of the editors I've gotten to know is, is they read you know, three lines, four lines, and mm -hmm. they know, they get rid of them fast. You know, you've got to catch, catch them early. And that's particularly when you're getting started. It has to be something original about it that they, that they haven't quite seen before. And uh, it has to be both specific and musical, and this is hard to do. Uh, also, I've done enough judging to know that uh, you would, get, on certain days, you might get up and you say, you really don't want to read another cat poem. You know, but everybody has a cat poem, or but you know, don't want to read it. And this, you have to just take that as part of the luck. But you, if you, you just can't get discouraged. You have to keep doing it, and soon you will, someone will pick up your paper and re give it a fair try. And uh, and I think that's true, but it takes a lot of time. And I, I sent my poems out for 10, 12 years uh, before I had a, a book. I won, I won prizes and things like that, but it. Uh, it's a very, uh, you could, people collect their, their uh, rejection notes. And, and mm -hmm. I did that for a while, but I had, I had too many. Mm -hmm. I didn't have room for them. And then they get, it's not that you get so much better, but once you get a foothold or getting in, you need, you need some luck and you need perseverance. You have to turn toward music and, and poetry is the kind of writing that's closest to music. And that's why the, the, how a poem sounds is very important and it, it, it influences the meaning of the poem in, in ways that it's very hard to articulate but it uh, the, you, that's why it's good to hear it read and and, and, and to say something is musical is different in everybody's ears but how i learned when i started getting things uh, published is that it was oh, oh, it was a mistake for me to send out a poem before i let at least three months go by then because I always thought of a way to improve it. And mm -hmm. that, that's how to know the poem was finished. People ask, you know, well, how do you know when a poem is ready to send and, 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 and is finished? And, and Yeats gave the best answer, which is not helpful in a general way, but I think he's right. And he says, I stop when something goes click in my head. Okay. And you have to learn to develop that sense with your own poetry. You have to know what that, okay, this is, a, this is the best that I can do. And I'm not gonna, you know, and I, I learned to do this by recognizing the shape is as, as much as I can, I can, as good as I can make it. And, and, and I, I don't worry too much about what I've said particularly, but I, I worry about how it sounds and how it also, how it looks on the page. So do you have a poem that taught you something about that click? Yeah, let me see. I'm, I'm picking this poem, one, because it's easy to find. It's a poem called Zinc Fingers. Jane Hirschfield had picked this poem. She was going to go on the march for science. And the poets are, are all for that kind of thing. And I, I love science too. And, 
And she uh, wanted to make a poster of this. Of, she said she always liked this poem. Who knew? I mean, and the nice thing about it, I thought this was going to be a poster that she carried, you know, a piece of paper and maybe a cardboard thing. Uh, seven poems made into big seven-foot banners, including oh, wow. zinc fingers. Exciting. And I can tell you how I knew that this was finished and, and even and sort of show you. So this is a poem I wrote uh, when we were in Paris with students. One day I made the mistake of getting them, there were about 13 of them or so, and uh, about half didn't speak French, and I had to keep them together. We were going someplace, I took them down, and it turned out to be rush hour earlier than I thought, and they just couldn't get them in there. Half of them got onto the, the metro, and we had to really push everybody on, and I was the last one. It was really obscenely tight fix, and I got on the last on the train that just closed behind me, and I remember what I told the students, you know, you're in a crowded place, watch out for pickpockets, and I put my hand slowly down to my pocket and another man's hand was already there. So I write this poem and the poem began and it, it was sort of interesting. It was kind of funny, this kind of story, but it, it didn't have enough. It wasn't that interesting even to me in a certain way. Why would anyone else care about this except it's kind of funny and that has something. And then uh, about a week or so later, I'm still in Paris and I'm reading the International Herald Tribune and they had an article on American criminals, a study of what they have in common. And you're thinking, well, they're poor educated, you know, they come from broken families, and they've had bad luck and illness. And, and well, they had all that kind of stuff. But they, one thing that was odd, that they, had, they tended to have a zinc deficiency. And I made the kind of joke that starts this poem. I, so I put this in the poem, but what criminals have in common was this zinc deficiency. And I'm working on that, and I'm changing a little bit what the poem was about. And... Later on, our daughter Gretchen is a scientist, and she's all excited. She was at Yale doing a postdoc. She said, "We're working on this protein, you know, and that's tr it, it, it's going to find out how cancer can be stopped." And the the name of this project is called Zinc Fingers. And a couple of jumps, I could see that this was going to work. So this this got me going on on a poem that was went far from the beginning. So this is the poem. Zinc fingers. Those scientists inform us that criminals have insufficient zinc. I've always believed it's insufficient gold and silver that gets them going. The man who slipped his hand into my front pocket on the jammed Paris metro wasn't trying to make friends. His overcoat smelled greasy and it was unpleasant holding hands above my wallet pressed in on all sides like stacked baguettes. There was no way to move or take a swing. Still, some action on my part seemed to be called for. We stood nose to nose. I tried to look in his eyes, but he stared at my chin, shy on our first date. So, after a while, as we rattled along toward the Champs-Élysées, I lost concentration and began to think of our scholarly daughter working at Yale on a project called Zinc Fingers, scanning a protein with pseudopods, each with a trace of zinc, that latch on to our DNA and help determine what we become. This brought me back to Mon Ami, the pickpocket. I wondered how he chose his hard line of work, and if, as a boy, he was good at cards, for example, or sewing. And, for that matter, what choice did I have, either? 
So when we reached our stop and he looked up from my chin at last, I smiled at him and his eyes flashed in fear or surprise. And I called, it's okay. As he scuttled away, tout va bien, though I held tight to my wallet. <laughs> so that, that's the poem. And it had a lot of stuff and it was almost twice as long. And as I worked on it, trying to get it condensed and make it be understandable, the science was complicated and how to work that in, uh, I began to see that I was breaking it down to to take advantage of this. It, it didn't rhyme, but it has a, a lot of interesting kind of words that are sort of the same, DNA and determine and all kinds of sounds inside the uh, assonance and, and the consonants. And, and, but what I saw even more than that as I was doing that is that the lines were all pretty much the same size. So I said, well, this is a poem about science. And, and it had, I had started to see that I had a whole bunch of lines that were 11 syllables long. So I started working on making this a syllabic poem, very scientific and very, very precise. And it seems like just a talking poem, but it was not. And that made me get rid of all kinds of things. And, and slowly it became pretty much the way it is. And I still didn't like the way it it looked, and I finally had the idea, if you, you can see it, is that, well, maybe I should make stanzas and where to put it. And the way I arranged it finally is there are 14 lines, and then there's a break where I lost concentration and began to think, and that's a nice point for a break. Mm -hmm. And that's where I dropped that down, and I dropped that, and I worked on this until it was 14 lines, sonnet length, surrounding this one line. Now, nobody notices that, and nobody cares about that, but to me... This was like the train between the left and right banks of Paris. I saw that. That's just what it meant to me. And this is a shape that maybe one in 10,000 students would finally say, well, that's like a train going between the left and right bank. But to me, that it, is what I needed to finish the poem. It gave you some structure. It. And this is it, what it did. It made me shorten the poem a lot. And it, it made me look at it the poem as an object of sound and direction. And uh, I think that this is true in a lot of these poems, uh, that it's a way of focusing your mind on the poem as a, as a language piece, not just right. telling a story. You and have I, work to do as a poet other have, than just exactly. you get getting the your idea ideas and your emotions. Now you've got to get that. And it's like, now one thing, nobody else would do that. Only me, see. And, and every every artist has his own kind of thing right. like that. Someone might just an artist might want a little more yellow, and you know, oh, there's that yellow that Rauschenberg uses, and and uh, that sort of thing. I, I teach a course called Formal Poetry. I taught a course, the ABC Darium. This is the least formal. You just have to start each line with the alphabet, and you go A, B, the second line B, C, and you go right through Z. Now, obviously, it's hard to do that, and it's hard to do that with any originality. But I made them work on that, and I said because if you are writing on something that you think is is uh, is, is of importance to you, it's helpful to look at the poem in a different way. So they got ideas they would not have. You see, this is what form and, and the shaping does. If you write free verse, that's all yours. That's You end the line here and that's where you want and you, these are the words you use. Doesn't matter what they sound like. That's you. And sometimes, good, I write free verse and sometimes it works. But when you write, write with form, that form has a mind of its own and it will give you another idea and it will make you think of another word. You need 
a three-syllable word, or you need a, something that rhymes with strums, or you know, you need all kinds of things, and that makes you smarter than you you it, than you normally would be. So this is my uh, ABC of aerobics. I wrote this as as you would guess because uh, at a time when I was doing a lot of jogging. Air seeps through alleys, and our diaphragms balloon blackly with this mix of carbon monoxide and the thousand corrosives the city doles out free to its constituents. Everyone's jogging through Edgemont Park, frightened by death and fatty tissue, gasping at the maximal heart rate, hoping to outlive all the others streaming in the lanes like lemmings lurching toward their last jump. I join in despair, knowing my arteries jammed with lint and tobacco, lard and bourbon, my medical history, a noxious marsh, newts and moles slink through the sodden veins, owls hoot in the lungs' dark branches. Probably I shall keel off the john like queer Uncle George and lie on the bathroom floor, raging about Shirley Clark, my true love in seventh grade. God bless her wherever she lives, tied to that turkey who hugely undervalues the beauty of her tiny earlobes, one view of which, either one, they are both perfect, would add years to my life, and I could skip these x-rays, turn in my insurance card, and trade yoga and treadmills and jogging and zen and zucchini for drinking and dreaming of her breathing hard. Yay! <laughs> so the first thing you have to think of when you're doing these is if, if you fulfill the rules, it's not necessarily a poem. The poem has to have the interest, the rhythms, the sounds, the poems have yeah. to make, even though I do work enormously hard on these, what you want them to do is to, to look like they just rolled off. And, and there it is. How nice. What a gift. There's a wonderful poem called Adam's Curse by W.B. Yeats. And, and he says he compares a, a poem to making a great overcoat. None of the stitches show. It just looks like an all one beautiful piece. And if it, if it doesn't look like that, all your stitching and unstitching was for naught. You know, it can't, you can't show that you're, you're slaving away and it's a hard job. You know, you, you want it to be a piece and it rolls out like, like music, I think. You can write a poem about anything because it doesn't matter. The subject of the poem does not matter as much as it's all in the way that you say it. For example, how many poems have been written about love and death and, and roses and children and cats? And, and still, there'll be a lot more written. And some, of, some are going to be really wonderful. And it's, it's, so it's not the subject. It's the, it's the look, that, the way that you talk about this cat or the, this Christmas poem. Could I read a Christmas poem? Yes. The Gift of the Magi. The angel of the Lord sang low and shucked his golden slippers off and stretched his wings as if to show their starlit shadow on the wall and did the old soft shoe, yeah, did the buck and wing. The magi put their arms around each other, then with chorus line precision and enormous zest, they kicked for Jesus, one, two, three, high as any Christmas tree, and Casper was the best. 
And Melchior told a story that had Joseph sighing in the hay while Holy Mary rolled her eyes and Jesus smiling where he lay as if he understood. Lord knew the joke was good. But Balthazar began to weep for seeing all the scenes to come. The child upon a darker stage, the star their spotlight stuttering out then shook his head, smiled, and sang louder than before. There was no dignity that night. The shepherds slapped their sheepish knees and tasted too much of the grape that solaces our sober earth. Oh, blessed be our mirth. Hey, blessed be our mirth. So that's you know, oh. turning the story inside out in a, in a, in a oh certain my. way. But in, in the rewriting, I, I had to do a lot of stuff for the, for the sound. And, and finally, you know, they have the Christmas tree, kicking, kicking as Christmas tree, and Casper was the best, because kicking Casper Christmas tree. But see, I didn't know this in the beginning when I'm writing this. And then Melchior told a story. And Melchior's story. You can see the, what's the way I'm thinking, how I'm organizing this. And every time I got that, I got Holy Mary rolled it. I got rhythms and sounds repeating. And then with Balthazar, because uh, I had the idea of, of uh, I knew it was somehow going to be sort of sad, but, but Balthazar began, and, and it's a hard oh, sound. Oh, yes, but, of course, but, because but you Balthazar feel the ominous. Balthazar began to weep yes. for seeing all the scenes. It's, it, the rhymes come heavy, and that's what you're looking for. I said, that's, yeah. that's where it wants to go, and then you follow it as much as you can, and then you rewrite. And I can remember uh, one of the last changes I made, I didn't... I, the, sh- the shepherds, you know, were slapping their, you know, their tired knees or something. When I, I somehow I just, it just came to me after a month of working on it, and shepherds slapped their sheepish knees. I know, and that's sh- funny. That's, that's funny, and it's, it's kind of, you know, accurate in a certain way, too, you know. So now I'm still writing, but uh, I'm writing more slowly. I, I also write in the morning, <laughs> not at night. I've enjoyed being the... Uh, poet laureate and but it is uh, at particularly at our age uh, it keeps us busy this is the first time they've had a system for the poet laureate so i'm the first one that's been picked by a committee and for a set time up to then it was sort of cronyism picked by friends mm-hmm. of the of the mayor or friends of friends and for life you know but this now the, the, the poets who are well published and and known are the ones who are going to be poet laureate of florida from now on what does it mean to be a poet laureate in, in, in reality, as opposed to a title? Well, uh, Howard Nemiroff, he, he said, it takes a lot of time being a poet laureate, mainly because people are always asking you, what do you do as a poet laureate? <laughs> okay. So that's part of it. And, and uh, I, have a, I have a, not a diploma, but a, a, anyway, one of those formal papers, very nice, uh, from the governor, and it, it says that I am to go around the state uh, propagating uh, poetry wherever I think fit and, and to encourage the writing and the enjoyment of poetry. And I, I take that very seriously. And I was poet laureate of St. Pete here for a while. And I went, I went to St. Anthony's and read to the homeless. You know, I had all kinds of interesting things. And, and a lot of it is, is fun. And I, I go to, of course, colleges and universities and high schools. But I, I read at the Suncoast Westminster Retirement Home. I've read at Sunflower Schools. I've, I've read also to the Sisters of Crime. Now, who knew there was an organization, the Sisters of Crime? 
And it turns out that they uh, also were interested in writing poems about crime and stories about crime. <laughs> And, and they uh, oh. and they did know that I had published a, a book of stories. I published a couple of books of stories, and and some have crimes in them, you know. But uh, they're not they're not really crime stories. But have all kinds of interesting things, you know. I'm going to talk to the history societies, and I read to librarians, and I read to various poetry societies, and I read to book clubs, and I like the reading quite a bit, and I like talking to the students. You know, it's like it's Johnny Appleseed with poems. You know, you just drop them around, hope one will grow. Those people, you know, are not going to grow up to be poets, but they often will grow up to be to like poetry. And uh, I get letters like that from students very often. Peter Meinke. Mikey, you got it right. Thank you so very much for being <laughs> with welcome. us today. It's, it's been a wonderful conversation. Fun. Well, uh, there's lots of fun here for me, too. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas Podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>